Okay. So what do you call yourself? Eh? Como se llama? Antonio Montana. This country, you gotta make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Speaking of getting clapped, this week's movie is Scarface. <laughs> uh, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah, let's just go with it. Uh, hello and welcome, everybody, uh, to Midweek Matinee, a uh, new weekly film podcast where we discuss a individual particular film every week uh, that we will normally, at the end of the episode, go ahead and let everyone be aware of so that you can watch it and hopefully join us and uh, and think about our, our discussions around it and see if they match your feelings or if you have anything else. And, uh, of course, reach out to us and let us know your thoughts on the movie. Uh, I am joined should be every week uh by mr oh i guess i should say my name i'm brett uh, and i'm joined by chris hello how are you otherwise known as figs for the purposes of this show i'm joined by josh hello and last but certainly not least uh mr blake what's going on everybody so since everyone is coming into this with this being a film uh, podcast, we hope that this is obvious, but at the same time, we like to put it out there. Uh, today's film, will be talking about the cult classic Scarface. And if you've never seen the movie and have had any interest in doing so, uh, or if for some reason clicking on this has made you interested in going and checking it out, maybe if you're listening to a backlog, uh, stop, go watch the movie, and then come back and uh, feel free to uh, participate in the discussion with us uh, as you listen along and afterwards. So with that said, uh, I am taking the hosting duties for this episode, but moving forward every episode, we will rotate the hosting duty out so that you can get to know all of us as uh, hosts individually and separately. But I think the best way to start this thing off, uh, I think, is going to be primarily getting a feel for just the basic answer of some of us, like me, coming and watching this movie for the first time, and then other people watching it for the first time uh, in a long time. Uh, How did everybody just... Did, did everybody enjoy the film as just a general uh, stasis? And then we can kind of go through uh, and, and see why you did or did not. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I did yeah. get a bunch. <laughs> Delay is always fun, right? Uh, My fault. I probably should have aimed that at somebody. Hey, Josh, did you like the film? Uh, hey, thanks so much for asking. I really appreciate it. No one asked me. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed it a bunch. It was, uh, I went in totally blind, you know, aside from just the the way this film has saturated pop culture in the way that it has, uh, I I really had no knowledge beyond basically uh, memes and parody, uh, especially Simpsons parody. Um, So yeah, it it was really cool exploring where that all came from and, you know, just getting to kind of steep in this world a lot. Um, You know, I'm sure we can get into more detail of it later on, but something that really I think was cool about this one for as long as it is is just like the the time it spends in moments whether they're moments of conversation or moments of sort of like pondering shots setting up a sequence where there's not really any dialogue or anything happening yet uh you know that's not something you see as much in like bigger budget movies so it was a uh, it, it was nice it, it that contributed to my enjoyment of it is just kind of like feeling like i'm enjoying the atmosphere of the movie yeah, you know, I'm definitely right there alongside you, Josh, as me being someone who came in. Uh, like you said, it's there's almost an insurmountable wall of coming into this completely blind because of how much, it, like you like you mentioned. I mean, the the right word for it is how much it's just saturated media. Uh, it, you know, it, it's become a classic for a reason, and uh, I think the best thing I could say coming back to it myself uh, and being really surprised. The, the thing that actually caught me too is long runtime and a long runtime that almost entirely builds itself 
on not being afraid to linger on a moment and letting you kind of soak it in mm-hmm. and see what's going on. So I, that's actually a really a really great thing to notice. Uh, but yeah, it, it's it's definitely a movie that comes with the uh, societal weight of being a. Uh, iconic film that has worked its way into all sorts of things. Uh, Blake, what about you, man? Yeah, you know, I um, I guess I grew up with the movie. I saw it way too young, probably, you know, 12 or 13. <laughs> and um, obviously didn't understand a lot of it at the time, but enjoyed it for what it was as what I call it at the time, you know, an awesome action film, which really, I don't, Ooh. like there's definitely action in it, but it's not really an action film. But, um, <laughs> You know, I've watched it probably six or seven times in total. And most of mm. those since then have been like, oh, I'm going to throw on some background while me and some friends either play games or just kind of hang out or whatever. So this was really the first time that I've sat and watched it in its entirety without doing something else along with it. And uh, like y'all said, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful film. Like, it's beautifully shot. The colors are just real vibrant and it's just filmed really well, like a lot more well than you would expect coming from what what the general consensus around the film is, you know. It's, a, it's an action film with drugs in it and stuff, so. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that you know there's a lot, it's it's had its effect in more than just uh, pop culture as far as the uh, the scenes and whatnot that are constantly referenced. You know, there is so many quotable lines that are brought back through or are referenced even visually in a lot of spots. Um, it's definitely had an impact on a lot of stuff. But one of the things I, th- I feel like it definitely has had an impact on is uh, lending. Um, more emotional weight to letting something that does have a tinge of action and a lot of stuff going on, but really letting it resonate as a drama. I mean, you know, it's something that I know has always existed, but when you start seeing how movies really started progressing from the fifties through the eighties, I feel like that kind of got to the point where it, it, as far back as I can tell, it seems like one of the first movies of that style that kind of got people to look and go, you know, you can kind of mix these two things together in a way that is satisfying from an action standpoint but does have its other thing. Uh, so lastly, but certainly not least here, Mr. Figs, yes, you are an interesting point in this because you had seen the movie before, if I understand correctly, I have. but you remembered not liking it. So how did rewatching it change your opinion or reinforce your opinion? Hmm. Yeah. So I grew up thinking that Scarface was a overrated nightmare of a movie <laughs> because it, when I was a kid, I thought it was an action movie Mm. and it was super boring for a lot of it. Like when I'm expecting that there's obviously some of the good scenes we'll talk about, like chainsaw, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think now as watching it older and actually like being cognizant of the movie, you know, I'm not, you're not really paying that much attention as a kid. I like it because it's a, it's, it's a psychological thriller to me. I don't think it's an action movie Mm -hmm. personally. And that's what I really liked about it was the movie was a deconstruction of a i don't maybe i'm reading it wrong but a a desperate immigrant who's kind of desperate for his mother's affection desperate for family and how he goes nuts trying to get all those things and destroys his life but while also trying to be a good person clearly not being a good person so i really liked it the second time watching it with that in my head like oh this is a movie about tony montana this isn't a movie about drugs or guns or killing or any of that stuff. Mm. It's, it's not that movie, you know? And I think that made it a lot better for me at the end, watching it this time. Yeah, it's, it's a movie about an individual. Uh, and I really do think mm-hmm. that's the best way to, to, to word it. There's a lot of action movies, like you mentioned, uh, where that is clearly building a character up to be 
what you'd expect from a action hero you know type of or not even actually hero but even sometimes like the action anti-hero or the uh uh just the kind of brute but at the same time right. really going in and giving you a deep character study about a person and uh and there's a lot of themes throughout the movie that if you look at it through the scope of an action movie mm-hmm. you're going to clearly miss but if you reframe the way right. you're watching it then you're going to get something a lot more interesting and a lot more in depth um okay yeah i think the the next logical place to kind of go with it to me and it's definitely something i picked up on a lot you know outside of its uh outside of a lot of different things with its thematic i think the thing for me is its cultural impact we've already brushed on that a little bit but there is a lot that you know it's funny how many things there's been times where you watch something and you understand clearly in the moment what it was referencing mm-hmm. there are a lot of things that bring it up there's a scene in breaking bad where walt and uh, uh and his son are watching the movie of course in the iconic scene and say hello to my little friend um but you know, when you go through all that, you see those moments, but then you also start to visually see things that as you kind of peer back and watch, you go, oh, I didn't realize that that is referencing Scarface. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, as you keep going through, you see the cultural impact on people who continue to create stories and clearly use that as a bedrock of, of hey, this is what we should somewhat aim to do because this is a uh, shining peak of what can actually be. Uh, I probably should have said bedrock earlier because that's a foundation, but really it's, it's, it's the peak of what I think that kind of movie or really what that kind of story could be. So mm. an interesting thing that actually uh, happened really recently uh, that is a, a, probably a different media than people would probably expect to see it in but clearly because we know that there was a game for the the movie uh, we do know that it definitely has its legs uh, in the gaming world uh, but a, a recent game that came out called a way out um, which is a co-op game where you and, uh, and another person the basic premise of the story is that you're going to be breaking out of prison yeah uh, but there's a lot more drama involved in, in there uh, it's it's set in a, in the, in the 80s uh, so or, uh, late 70s early 80s if I'm not mistaken and clearly it picks up a lot of its vibes and what it's trying to do from this and uh, it's interesting how much I saw that pull because of the story it was choosing to tell it chose to use scarface as a reference point uh, and because I, I already picked up on some of it towards the end from seeing some of that, but the more I look back now that I've watched Scarface shortly after beating that game, I found it really interesting that it's transcended that movie's importance and its legacy has transcended far past the medium that it originally uh, came into. So it's well it's well past uh, movies, and you can see its effects, I think, in, in music, you can see it in games, you can see it in television, which is a similar medium, but it's still uh, transcending its original medium. And I find that to be really interesting from a cultural impact standpoint. Um, anybody else have any kind of gleams on that? Yeah, I actually have an interesting example of that. Now that I, I was thinking about it today, the old movie theater in my town got bought out, but the old logo for it, they had this massive globe on the roof and it just said the movie theater name around it. And after seeing Scarface, I'm sitting here like, was that is that a fucking Scarface reference at my local movie theater? <laughs> like, probably not. But it there's no like way. It. Yeah, um, I, I actually have an interesting thing I like to say about its cultural impact. Where I think the cultural impact of the movie is actively detrimental to the movie mm. because I think what the cultural impact that people took out of that movie was cocaine and say hello to my little friend. <laughs> And I, I don't think that's the point of the movie. Oh, okay. I, I don't want to interrupt you, but I want to make sure I'm understanding because I think I agree with you in the sense of, I, I think what you're saying is the way that you see it 
referenced in mainstream common media right. primarily looks at it from the standpoint of the guns, drugs, and and sheer yeah. insanity of the moment mm. instead of actually choosing to reference some of the more somber, interesting moments of the film, well, correct? I, yes, but at a certain point, it's like, think about the scene of Say Hello to My Little Friend, right? What happens right before that is his sister tries to kill him after he kills his best friend. And that is his lowest point in that movie. Obviously, he dies seconds after. That's realistically his lowest point. But living, Tony Montana's lowest point is that scene. Say hello to my little friend is him at his worst. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you look at everything about Scarface, it's, oh, say hello to my little friend. And that's the joke, right? That's what everyone takes away. And And no one carries the emotional weight with, yeah. Yeah. His sister just died. He just killed his best friend. He's alone. He's literally by himself now. Nobody loves him anymore. Yeah. And but that's the that's the thing. It's him with his face in cocaine and him shooting a gun with a grenade launcher. That's the saddest part of the movie if you really think about it. But that's the part that is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh Blake, you got any insight on that? Yeah, I was going to say where where he said that its cultural impact was detrimental. I I think not only in the way that you describe but also as like a you know, should I watch this movie? And you look at everything, like you said, about Say Hello to My Little Friend, drugs, violence. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're not into that, you may just skip this movie entirely, not right. knowing that the movie is really, it's about all of those things, but it's really not about all of those things, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And scary, I wonder, or scary movie. I was, no, you can go ahead. I was just going to say that Scarface is closer to the movie Ray starring Jamie Foxx than it is to like, I don't know, blow, but like, hmm. it seems like you would switch that where it's, it's a biopic, but not, in, but everyone thinks it's an action movie. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how many people have gone into this film and not liked it because they expected it or ended up liking it thinking they wouldn't, you know, me, literally me. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. It's just interesting to see like what everyone thinks the movie about is about or talks about it and compared mm-hmm. to what it really is as as a film overall. Yeah, and to to, to go back towards what you were talking about, it, it is interesting that when when Figs said uh, that its legacy and cultural impact is kind of detrimental to the film, uh, the, another way that I kind of viewed that, though it's definitely what you're talking about, is that the other thing that happens when you have a movie of that thing is that because it's so unavoidable and you've heard about it in some capacity your whole life, it's easy to become jaded toward it because you feel like, you know, why does this have the cultural legacy that it does but also why is it always the same scenes and when you're kind of going through it it's you get this feeling of like you know i feel like this is a movie that was all about time and place and people who were in that time and place understand it and that's why it got its cultural success Mm. and that's why it's still relevant as people go through their lives and and try and retell and use that story as a, as a stepping stone. But you get to that point where it's like, we, we mentioned it with something else, but it's almost like the, the last episode that sadly um, is, is, is gone forever. Uh, but <laughs> we, we talked about the Marvel movies having a really hard barrier of entry. Now their hard barrier of entry comes from just being a very, very long and in depth you know list of movies that you have to go through and watch if you want to understand every single little bit of it now even though you don't have to do that to understand it on the surface level you still got to watch somewhere in the ballpark of 10 films to really kind of understand what you're dealing with correct Uh, the, the barrier of entry in this movie is that 
you are trying to overcome the expectations everyone else has set for it, mm. which feel like over time that they're impossible to be met. And uh, I, I fall into the camp that Blake mentioned where it becomes a situation for me where watching the movie because of what I expected, it was detrimental on the outside looking in. When y'all first mentioned it, I was kind of like, man, you know, like I'm excited to watch it because I've never watched it, but I feel like I, I know what I'm getting into going into it, and I clearly did not. So to right. the movie's credit, watching it and letting it show me what it was as opposed to what I thought it was from what culture would have taught me uh, was really an interesting time. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. Josh, uh, do you have any, uh, any thoughts on the cultural impact of the movie or anywhere that you've seen its legacy kind of uh, bleed through? Uh, yeah, before I get into any of the thoughtful stuff, I just want to shit all over that by mentioning that in middle school, I had a t-shirt that was Homer Simpson, but it was the Scarface cover, and it was him in a white suit <laughs> holding a remote control instead of a gun. <laughs> and uh, oh, I love. Was it a tall tee? Please tell me it was a tall tee. It might have been. It, it, was, it was like one of those uh, folded <laughs> off-of-the-rack t-shirts you get a target and you know it's on some pretty uh rough material and <laughs> you know it, it becomes all cracked over time as you wash and dry it repeatedly um sure. but it, it's one of those things where i think it speaks to us kind of making memes before we really called memes what we do and the way we interact with them today i think that same practice really applied uh all throughout popular media and that's kind of evidence of it is Things that, like, it doesn't even have meaning anymore because of how just completely, like, it's, it's like, subconscious at this point. It's just, like, everyone knows, like, the black and white bars and the dude in the suit and, like, that's Scarface. And, like, you can know nothing about the movie. You cannot have any idea who Al Pacino is or any of the other facets of the movie. And you can just recognize that and immediately it's Scarface. It's, like, you know, it's, like, the Misfits logo. It's, like, Star Wars. It's, like, anything. And I think, I, I think it's an interesting thing because a lot of... Presumably, and I, I obviously this is like a broad stroke sort of comment, but presumably when you make a creative work, you want it to find an audience. You want it to be recognized and kind of be received by a number of people. And maybe you have a different number of people in mind depending on the project and depending on who you are. But I think it's one of those things where it's sort of like a double-edged sword of that. Where is the line between it being a good thing and a bad thing for everyone to be so intimately familiar with your work to where it eclipses the experience of enjoying it as a standalone thing versus enjoying it as it being a thing that's so enmeshed in pop culture that it is now thoroughly tangled in all of the other things that reference it. And those things kind of eclipse it in a way. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's just interesting to kind of revisit a movie like that where it's like, sure, you, you kind of... You know, as Chris kind of points out, the the most uh, talked about and featured parts of this movie are ones that happen in the end, and we kind of maybe misunderstand or misrepresent. And I don't know, I feel like that's true of a lot of popular things where maybe, like Titanic, for example, and I I hope this isn't a, a spoiler to where if we were to feature the movie on a future episode, we would feel like this is me uh, kneecapping that. But I feel like everyone kind of <laughs> knows the the end where she's reflecting on these experiences in her life. And she's like, it's been 84 years. And it's like, <laughs> for better or worse, we kind of make memes of everything. And we kind of have like, you know, the two word, the one sentence summary of what something is. And I think, 
it's kind of our job when revisiting older stuff to figure out what our relationship is to that and to figure out if we can enjoy a thing in context of that or if we kind of have to separate it to still get that full experience. Because, like, uh, a thing that we had kind of talked about in the last episode was, like, I don't know, some old stuff maybe doesn't hold up in the same way where it's like, wow, this is fresh and exciting. Sometimes you gotta, you kind of got to work at it because it approaches you at a different level than modern, you know, modern movies tend to hit different than older movies. So you kind of have to adjust a little bit, kind of like steep yourself in that a little bit, or I don't know. I I think it's interesting. This is a really good example of like just revisiting an older movie. And yeah, it's, it's given me a lot to think about even for how relatively like straightforward i guess it is and uh yeah well go ahead bring it back a couple of things that you mentioned josh uh, i really do think there's something about the uh the meme comment about things being uh, memeified before that's what we chose to uh, refer to them as or before we started to uh, distribute them the way that we commonly view it as now like you know social media has really changed the way that we view what a meme is mm-hmm. uh, but i think you're right in the fact that culturally it's been around for a lot longer and people just don't realize it uh, like going back to your shirt comment you know uh, you'll often see shirts parody things but all you got to see is the imagery and you know what it is without having to have ever experienced the item uh, or anything like that. It's like uh, another movie that goes towards an example of your, um, everybody knows the ending, uh, the, you know, everybody knows the general ending of Titanic. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone has an idea of what Scarface is, regardless of if they've ever seen it or anything. And, uh, you, you brought up star Wars, you know, star Wars is another interesting one where growing up, uh, you know, prior to having watched any of them, uh, you know, and even after I'd watched them, almost every kid, even ones who have never seen them would run around and, uh, spew the, iconic yet also false uh quote of luke i am your father and it's it goes to show how funny it is that everyone you know would run around who hadn't seen it and that line had become iconic despite not even being the line that's actually said in the film uh it it just goes to show how some things can definitely jump out and have a life of their own outside of what they were and that really speaks volumes to what you're talking about of when you go towards watching something definitely in today's day and age and going back and visiting it uh, you have to either realize that you put yourself in that context and can you enjoy it within the context of what that was or do you have to separate it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that uh, Scarface in particular, I actually think holds up really well as a movie, but the thing that I that you did have to kind of change it to and, and how it sits a lot differently than a modern film is that while we're used to modern films having a longer runtime, most of the time the longer runtime is still padded with moment to moment action mm-hmm. and trying to keep you titillated at all moments whereas we mentioned earlier Scarface revels in its ability to linger on a moment and really kind of let you soak something in and take it in and it uses its long runtime in a very different and slow paced way uh, that does a lot for the movie in terms of grounding it so I definitely want to touch on that a little bit later Uh, but does anybody have anything else they want to add in about um, the cultural legacy of it before we move on I I think I just wanted to bring up the point that um, I do think the meme thing has gotten significantly worse. <laughs> you know, it was always, there was a couple things, right? It was, you know, I see dead people or uh, oh, yeah. your father, but now it's like thinking back to like infinity war. It's like, if you didn't see that movie on release date. There was a whole mess of memes the next day that you did not understand. Yeah. You know? And I think that's, I think that just goes to show where we're at with this stuff. Yeah. I think that, uh, memes are an interesting thing of letting 
every type of art exists outside of its medium um, mm-hmm. and it's an unfortunate it's, it's a it's a love hate thing you know like i really love that some of these memes come around and, and and get their own life and sometimes it's people who find these memes hilarious without having anything to having any context as to what they're referencing uh they they find their own audience um and, and that's really interesting um but it's just it's a it's a product of our time and to how much weight we put behind it, even though I do agree with uh, Josh on it being something that's always culturally been around. It just was done in a different way. The way that we serve it up is a lot different now. And the way that people latch onto it is a lot different now. Um, uh, but moving along, uh, I do want to eventually kind of get into a, mo- a field where we can kind of all um, free and openly talk about that. And I think that this might be the moment to do it. Uh, mm. and, and that's going to be essentially starting with, thematic things that you found in the movie any kind of themes that you saw brought up uh, and kind of just from there going out and noticing scenes that you thought were really interesting things that you picked up on that you find interesting uh, or that you think maybe other people have or have not noticed that you ended up noticing yourself um, does anybody have something in particular that's jumping out at them that they'd like to start with I mean I do I don't know if anyone else wants to go first no go ahead Figs. so since I've watched that movie I have had one scene and one joke I've been waiting to make on this podcast because I think it is the funniest thing in that fucking movie that I never knew was there and nobody talks about. And it's the scene when, oh, now I'm blanking on the name, but when he kills the, the cop and the other guy, what's his name? The first guy Frank. he kills. Frank. Yeah, who tried to hit him, who tried to assassinate yeah. him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they go through that whole scene and they kill the two guys and then Tony leaves, and he turns around and he goes, Ed, do you want a job? And the funniest part of this fucking movie is when the other guy, played by, I'm assuming, Bruno Mars, <laughs> leans, leans, leans over to Ed and just goes, Ed, you got a job. I thought that was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. I have been thinking about that one scene for yeah, like a week. Scene. <laughs> you know the other guy i wrote down his name because i didn't want to forget it ernie was the guy mm-hmm. that he gave the job oh, to yes. or whatever and he was uh just when he takes a big swig of like i guess it was whiskey or something and just like yeah, yeah, his eyes and like breathes heavily oh man i died it was, it was so, it was like, so yeah. funny uh, okay uh you know something about that scene while we're on it uh i can go ahead and bring that up uh and this is on the swing of a completely different side. But one thing that that scene I, that made me just really like double take and be like, wow, what great attention to detail. Uh, that whole scene goes on for about three minutes from mm. start to finish. Uh, and one of the things I really loved is that if, as you're watching the, the, the scenes play out, uh, even with cuts and different things going on, uh, of course, we're not there, and, and, and I didn't watch a making of documentary, so we can't just necessarily know exactly the process that went into making that scene. But what struck out to me is that throughout the entirety of the scene, as time goes on, and I actually rewinded to double check this because I was like, wow, that's really amazing. If so, uh, the clock in the background, there's a clock that's very much at the center of the scene. You can see it. It's a, you know, it's the old style clock with the little flaps that fold down to make the numbers. So it's big. The numbers are very visible and it has the time. And as you continue to go through the scene, in the time that is passing within the world, you see the clock change until that last minute, and it's in the third minute. And it really surprised me because it speaks to either one of two things. Either someone, even throughout multiple takes, knew the integrity and, and, and had this idea of this is a movie that is really grounded, and as often as possible, we want to remove anything that could remove you from the immersion of the film. 
Mm. So either throughout takes, someone had the foresight to go through and make sure the clock was exactly as it should be per take, or this was done in very minimal takes, or maybe even a single take that was cut, uh, depending on how cameras are set up. I just thought it was a really interesting detail because something I find uh, is really common in movies now as people... You know, one of the things I think is really bad about media these days is that there seems to be deadlines that really change what people focus on. And that may not be for the worse, really. I do think that in the long run, uh, the story and the characters and everything really need to be the most important thing. But when you can have the time to go through and look and even have something like this go in the background, I think it speaks volumes as to what you're aiming to go for in the movie. And to me, that ties back into one of my biggest things about the movie in that it's very very grounded and, and and you know we talked about it lingering in moments i feel like most of those moments are in an effort to to essentially i don't want to say humanize because it's not really the best way to word it but it's it's in an effort to keep this grounded and and like it's building a world that you are even today in 2020 having not seen this movie before i felt like i understood that world from start of the movie to the end and that was really interesting to me i didn't feel like i had to put myself in the 80s the movie put me in the 80s for me mm. yeah no i would fully agree with that yeah i mean so I, uh, I don't know if anybody had anything else if there was any other shit standout scenes that had uh, that visual consistency it was just the thing that kind of made me perk up when i saw it and i thought that was interesting but go ahead josh that's a really cool detail observation i didn't notice that but yeah, yeah that, that is either. a really interesting uh I guess observation in general, I, I feel like it's easy to look at historical examples in media of like, uh, you know, attention to detail to the finest degree. And uh, yeah, I, I'd be curious what overall, you know, if you could quantify that and have like a, an accuracy of attention to detail or, you know, consistency. I, I forget what that position is on set where it's like uh, consistency shot to shot. You know, if an object gets moved, you know, it making sure everything gets zeroed out when you're reshooting the take or whatever it is. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting uh, in that time, it being a purely analog shoot, you know, having to still account for that. And I would be curious if that was just, they've got a regular clock and they did it in one take, or if maybe the clock is off and they're manually moving the numbers to reflect the change of time as they're getting each shot or what it is. But yeah. I would love to find that out. That'd be a really cool scene. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the analog camera thing because that's actually one of the most interesting things when you're dealing with analog stuff and you're dealing with real film like they were. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the reason that we see movies nowadays have inconsistencies that are easy to catch. Uh, Star Wars bringing that back up. Uh, one of the rise of or one of the last Jedi scenes that people uh, talked about a lot is that during the throne room fight scene, there were a lot of visual inconsistencies that came up. But people don't realize that even though that whole movie's filmed on uh, with a digital camera, and so were the prequels. It was just a different a difference in the ideas that go behind them. You know, in the prequels, everything was um, choreographed. It was like, hey, we're really going to do this fight, and then the effects are going to only be added in after to do the things that we can't obviously do in real life, like lightsabers uh, and and maybe like really crazy backflips. But for the most hmm. part, we're going to keep this fight as grounded as possible. And for better or worse, the new trilogy, of course, kind of removes that. They are they have no problem doing everything digitally and letting things be cgi created and only choreographing where you really need it uh, and that does lead to a difference and and uh, like you said there are people that look at you know consistency between shots but i do think that there's 
a difference in depending on genre and depending on filmmaker and depending on budget and all those different things as to how important that is and to what minute detail. Are you only looking at the things that are the most forefront in the shot or are you looking at every final little thing in an effort to not remove immersion? So, uh, yeah, good, good call out. Um, but anyway, uh, Blake, did you have something you were trying to say out to you? Yeah, I didn't notice the thing with the clock. So that's actually incredibly interesting. I was really excited when you said that because uh, I didn't really notice anything that standout-ish or whatever. But that's really cool. I might need to rewatch it now and just see, you know, what else little little details like that would be noticeable. Um, but with overall theme wise, I think the biggest one is greed. And like you mm. know. When he first saw his mom, you know, she even mentions that. And then, you know, I think it was Frank in the club whenever that first, like, uh, Babylon club scene, he mentions that, too. Like, that was rule number one. Don't underestimate the other guy's greed. So, like, greed was mentioned numerous times throughout. And I think that was ultimately the downfall of Tony. So... Yeah, you know, that is a, I'm glad you mentioned that too, because that was another one of my big notes that I actually put a lot down because I thought that was interesting too. Uh, the, the theme I called on it, it, it definitely is greed, but I, I think the bigger theme that I took from that particular scene is the pride of man, uh, is, yes. what I, is what I kind of worded it as. Because what it is, is that it's, it's the pride of Tony who seems to think that he's infallible to the same problems of this other person. Mm-hmm. He views this man, he sees him, he understands what Frank is saying, and he sees what greed can do to you but uh due to the ego that he has he he thinks he's infallible to it but what was more interesting you know we talk about this movie being a a character study and a biopic um one of the interesting things I thought in relation to that was as the movie kind of continues on and you can really see where his pride continues to get the best of him because you see him lie to his mother about what his job is. He, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't want to tell her how he actually did get the money, even though he's fully aware of the fact that she knows he, he knows it, but he can't admit it because he's a prideful man. Right. Uh, he looks down on his sister and his mother both for choosing to work hard at least when he first sees them and you know definitely the mother being the one who drives at home the mother has the the uh, the value of working hard to earn an honest living whereas the pride of him looks and says you know he, he tells his sister my sister excuse me my sister will not be working hard day and night when she can have everything and he can be the person to provide that for him uh and the other, the last thing, kind of about that scene where he goes home and talks to his family, is uh, if you notice he'd been in, he'd been in for a long time, but he specifically waits to return home because he does not want to return home and see his family until he can consider himself to be a success that he can show to his family, and alongside all that. He also wants to be the head earner and to kind of help and protect his family and his sister in particular. It's it's almost like he's wanting pride is leading him to do a lot of things. And the interesting thing is, I think the most uh, the most relatable aspect of it is that some of his pride seems to be geared towards trying to be the man of his family because he knows there's not one anymore. But he doesn't realize that his viewpoint of how to do that is twisted. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I thought. I actually am glad you were talking about pride because I actually almost vehemently disagree with Blake that it's about greed. I don't think that Tony Montana is greedy at all. I don't even think the money in terms of its monetary value mattered to him. 
and I think that's when him and Manny are talking about security, and Manny was saying it was like, oh, we're giving up twelve percent of our money. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't give a fuck, because I think his whole thing was not money to spend. In my opinion, it was money as maybe power. You know, yeah, I have the money. I control my sister. I control my mom. I control Manny. I control drugs. And, and also, I think that's kind of leads to his downfall when he doesn't go through with the hit where it was pride that made him stop. And it was also the pride of I'm Tony fucking Montana that allows him to make that choice because nobody's going to touch me. I'm Tony. Yeah. You know, I love that you brought up the hit scene with the family. Uh, I, I think it speaks a lot about who Tony is as a man in that world, even through all the terrible monstrous things he's done. He could not yeah. bring himself to be the monster that would kill a wife and a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote down even Tony's in quotes morality because I don't think yes. he's a moral person, but he does hold he, very particular morals. He has morals. his own. Right. Yeah, he has, he has a set of center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Josh, do you have any insight on that? Just so we don't skip you. Uh, I mean, it, Blake seemed to have a thought on that, so I'd love to let him finish. Okay, okay, go ahead, Blake. I was just going to say, I don't. I absolutely agree with the pride thing. I wrote down pride as well, but greed was the one that I like circled five times because mm-hmm. I do think that he was greedy. You know, he was trying to get to the top. He wasn't just trying to take care of his family. You know, it's one thing to like do something illegal that you need to do to provide for your family and be the man of the house. But I think it's another thing to like buy the biggest mansion. I don't know if it was the biggest, but you get, you get my point. Yeah. You're not wrong. I, I just kind of don't think it was about money. Well, personally, I think it was just, he had the money. (laughs) Yeah. If I can interject, I think what Blake is really trying to say in in relation to that, and this might be something that Josh has a thought on as well. And and Blake may want to finish up on as well is I I don't think uh, it's easy to hear the word greed and think about money and and possession. I think that as Blake, uh, Blake has already kind of uh, slightly brushed up on uh, it's greed in the, in the uh, all encompassing sense. It's that he wants to be the, he wants to be the best at everything. He wants it's to be a the, power, the person. A power who, greed. Yes, it's power greed, right. not monetary greed. Uh, yeah. Even though monetary greed, of course, is a, is a facet of that. So, well, uh, that's fair. I guess. Off. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I do think that money played an important part, obviously. But mm-hmm. I think it was a, like like Brett was clarifying for me. I think it was a power thing. I think he wanted to be, like you said, he's Tony fucking Montana. You know, he yeah. was. He was. He thought of himself as a god. You know what I mean. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think Brett made the good point where I'm thinking of it as just like, oh, he's got billions or whatever he had, and that w- that was where I was taking the greed thing. But even it kind of goes into exactly what I was saying. What you're saying with greed is he was greedy for the pride, and he was greedy for acceptance. You know, he, all this kind of stuff he needed. Yeah, uh, there's a scene that I want to that I really think speaks volumes to this, but I don't want to get too ahead of anything. Josh, did you have anything you wanted to add to that before I kind of go into the scene? Sure. Uh, the one of the big takeaways, in addition to obviously what you guys have both uh, spoken on, uh, I, I really felt Tony's need for agency in his world. I, I think it was expressed uh, right from the get-go. You know, uh, him being. Uh, a refugee from a tumultuous political time, him being a former soldier, him uh, seeming to have done jail time, and just, you know, always kind of 
even when he was working under someone else, he didn't view them. He didn't view himself as subservient. He viewed himself as using that situation to his advantage. And I think that really mm. showed up, especially when, you know, when they're out at that villa and he's there with Frank's uh, henchman guy and he's basically talking over him and saying like, no, here's how we're going to do things. And the henchman guy is kind of like, you know, like the fuck are you doing? Like I- I'm in charge here. Like, shut up. And he's like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And it's just like, you know, normally I think most people uh, would probably be like, oh, well, I should, you know, probably not ruffle too many feathers. But he's like, no, I, I'm not beholden to anyone. I do what I believe I have to do. Um, and, and yeah, I, I really felt that, especially later on, as it sort of spiraled out of control, I, I felt... Uh, to agree and disagree with each of you simultaneously, I guess I agree that greed was a part of it. And yes, definitely the power side of things. Uh, I think, I I think money was a tool to him. It was a non object, the same as like the drugs were like he, you know, like even face down in them. It's just sort of like a thing to numb the pain. It's not a thing that he seemed to really get a lot out of. Um, but I think it was all, you know, whether it's him talking about the security cameras or him wanting, you know, just more security. I think it was all just about agency, about knowing that no one could take it away from him, that it was his and his alone. Um, and just being able to shape his world. I, I think I really felt that obviously to a fault, you know, his, his biggest need was a need of control. I, I really am glad that you brought that up because that actually is, is going towards, uh, and I thought for a second you were going to reference the scene, but you did reference another scene that I do think also speaks volumes to that in particular is I, I'm, you really, you, you nailed it with your wording is agency. That was the word I was going to land on too. Um, and it kind of ties all of these different things together. His pride, his greed, his need for agency, his need for control. Uh, there's a scene early in the movie that I think sets this up for you and lets you understand uh, how he is. Uh, so not too long into the movie, when you see him uh, and Manny uh, working at the dish, you know, working as dishwashers at the little diner thing, mm-hmm. uh, and then the guys come up, the henchmen for Frank come up in the car. Uh, they go out and they're trying to broker a deal about what's going on, right? Uh, but to Tony's need, he doesn't want to be told what to do. He wants to essentially assert what he can do and then take advantage of that opportunity. It, 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 like I said, it, it brings them all together because in that moment, you know, he's being told, go do this small fry thing and we'll give you $500. He gets $500. You know, that doesn't aid me in getting anywhere and giving me the control I need. Uh, like you mentioned, everything that he's doing is about building power and building money, but it's all in the name of it being a tool so that he can have ultimate say over what he does with his life uh and in that scene you see him essentially push himself until he gets to a point where he realizes that he can leverage this into a way for him to gain more control you see it mirrored again after he he does the action so uh, you know it goes through and he gets the, the drugs from the colombians and doesn't spend any of the money either he says no i want to deliver it to frank it's all about control he doesn't want to relinquish that control to someone else it's about bringing it to him uh and the last thing that i kind of think really goes back and aids towards what you're talking about with the uh, agency as well is uh, the scene towards the end of the movie when he's uh, looking at jail time because he gets you know caught um, essentially laundering the money. Yeah. Um, when he's going through and doing that and he's being told by his lawyer that he's going to have to face jail time, even though the jail time would be easy and simple and a better experience than he had in Cuba, it's not about the fact that he's having to go to jail because jail is a less than ideal place. It's because jail is a spot where he has no control. That's what I took away from that scene. Same. Says, no, I'm not going back to the clink. I'm not going in a cell. A cell to him is a metaphorical thing more than anything. Mm-hmm. 
as as way I viewed it. It's it's he's viewing anything that keeps him from controlling his life as he sees fit to be a cell to him, be it a literal cell of a jail or a metaphorical cell in the sense of uh, you know opportunity, not you know not knocking at his door the way he wished it would have. So he goes out and grabs it. Um, yeah, but, I mean the world you know, is yours, as his uh, as his globe said, and as that quote really. <laughs> kind of nailed it home i think his mentality yeah you know speaking of that quote uh there's a lot of stuff i love about that quote uh and the one that got me is of course i had always remembered seeing it in the uh the little scene where you know at the end of the movie when they're going through his mansion that he has on the globe uh but what i thought was really interesting about it going back and watching it for the first time is that he gets that from the blimp that's rolling through that says the world is yours rolling through on it uh and it goes by right after Tony decides to enact revenge on Frank. Mm. And the weird thing I thought about that is it almost makes me wonder, and I don't think the movie's aiming for this, but it was an interesting thought of mine. I almost wonder if in that moment that was real or if that was almost like him looking out and projecting what he felt onto something in the real world. The scene is so vague and and seemingly, I'm not going to say seemingly non-important. Obviously, he sees that and then they mirror it back later in the movie on the globe. So it it meant something to him. Uh, But I just thought that was a a really interesting thing. I I, I didn't know if it was the way he saw the world. Mm -hmm. Like if that, if that really even happened or if it's just, you know, kind of a, when you're looking at the world through Tony Montana's eyes, this is what you're going to see. But interesting scene uh, uh, nonetheless. So uh, any other scenes that uh, stand out to uh, anybody? Yeah, I was going to say, um, you kind of took a point away from me and proved me wrong, Brett, when you said that, um, you know, when you first met Omar, when he they were working at that little bitty, uh, that trailer or whatever, that, I guess, like, was it a taco stand or something? Something they, like um, that, yeah. It's a Cuban sandwich stand. Where that's where, sandwich stand, that's where he, um, you know, started to show that he had to be in control of everything, you know? I, I had it written down that, you know, him wanting to be in control started kind of with the chainsaw scene which we need to talk about for sure. I think that might be my favorite scene in the movie because, you know, the look in his eyes when his friend is getting cut up with the chainsaw is like, I thought that was kind of where he was like, okay, I don't ever want to be in this position again. Mm. Yeah, a a, a position of complete lack of control. Yeah, where he, there's nothing he could do at the moment, you know? Yeah. And, but like you said, it, it started before then. You're absolutely right, so. But I do think that's a pivotal scene. But I still think that that scene wasn't, no, oh, no, no, you're fine. I, I was going to let you go ahead and expound because th- you're right in the sense of even if that's not where the first time that the movie shows it, and I'm not even sure that the uh, the scene uh, is the first time he shows it outside of the sandwich stand. Uh, it could honestly, you know, and going back, it could have been kind of hinted at even earlier in the in the uh, uh, refugee camp. But that's definitely a pivotal scene where you see the effects of the lack of control on him in a way that's unlike. Not the rest of the movie at all. There is actually another scene that I think comes up and mirrors that to an extent, but it definitely uh, is a pivotal scene for that particular idea and mindset. Um, but so go ahead if you had anything else you want to add about that scene because that is a very interesting, very. I, I'm surprised I've not seen or heard of that scene. Going back to the idea of its cultural impact, I'm surprised that that's not referenced more often, or at least that I've noticed. Yeah, same. Yeah, that scene to me is really just like. I don't know, I think it is one of the most important scenes in the movie, and I think that it, you know, it really shows Tony's lack of care in the way that, you know, after he ran out in the street with 
you know, how many people were standing out in the street? At least maybe 15 or 20. And he just yeah. looks him right in the eyes and shoots him in the head in front of all those people. It just really showed that, like, you know, he's ruthless. You know, he'll do whatever he needs to do. Yeah. Well, that's and true, but that, he didn't really that's need interesting... to do that either because the guy was, like, running away. So Sure, but it's also one of those things where it's a moment after he's and it's not that the movie would portray it this way but i take it as like it's a retaliation of him being somewhat broken and having to go through watching his friend lose his life and i actually really appreciated that the movie brought that particular thing back up the fact that he had lost someone to such to, right. to, to negligence and uh and, and miscare um so it clearly was a moment that had an impact on him and I don't know that I'd go as far as to say I used the word broke him, but that might be honestly the best word I can use to describe that. I mean, like you said, the look that comes over his face as he realizes there's nothing that can you can do, and then the and the, how strong his retaliation is with the care of not you know, with no care as to who is around to witness it. It almost was like a retaliation of it needed to be done as uh, payback. Yeah, for what he had, had experienced. So uh, you know, it's yeah, yeah. Absolutely. He didn't have to, but it was about, and, and yeah, he is ruthless because of it. But it's it's not like he's just ruthless in the sense of this is someone who's in his way. This is someone who not only was in his way. This is someone who'd taken something from him. Because uh, I do think the movie yeah. actually does a lot to set up that core group of friends early and. I found it very interesting that they would aim to remove one of them in such a gruesome way so early and the impact that that would have on uh, on Tony as a character. Uh, definitely after Tony was the one who spearheaded and brokered this deal to begin with, Tony is aware of the fact that this wouldn't have happened if he had not been so insistent yeah. on doing something bigger. But at the same time, since he got since the long run uh, the the long in the long run, the ending for him, despite losing a friend, was still able to leverage him. It's just interesting into how that builds into who he is for the remainder of the film. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And I do think it was really funny when the guy with the chainsaw was like stumbling his way through the other room out the window. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like basically um, falling through that room. It was all I don't know. It, was, it was just cracked me up pretty well. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you brought up the, the the look in his eyes and the and the and all that about that death. Uh, just without saying anything myself, do you does anybody feel like that it gets mirrored or brought up again somewhere else in the movie? And if so, uh, aware because I thought it was a, a, a tie in a callback uh, while being even more personable. But if you know, just uh, more positing to see if it's mm. me overlooking or just or or too surface level reading it. You know. I can't think offhand, but you might be right. I don't know. Are you likening uh, the the chainsaw killing to his sister being shot down at the end? Absolutely. Interesting. And the reason I say that, and 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 again, it could be me looking at it too much of a surface level. Uh, now Tony's response is even more visceral, but we essentially see the same reaction pattern. Right? We see something happening that he's now lost control of. Mm-hmm. We see him being in a position where he should be outnumbered in every way. And then we see the tide turn in his favor temporarily uh, towards the end, at least where we see him buck back from the, from the, and I, it, it, again, with his sister, it's a lot more. He, he almost refuses to accept her death, 
but the impact is very similar as far as I was able to read into it. Uh, you know, we see him at a very weak moment, weaker than the time before, as we see time and, and experience break him even more. Uh, and then, of course, the personal loss of someone so close that he he vowed to protect. But then we see him bounce back and have a really strong visceral reaction when he realizes what's going on and he has his final blowout scene mm-hmm. all the way into the fact that when he's getting shot at the end, he's getting shot left and right and left and right and left and right. And it's like, he really is a God at that moment for a split second when he's getting hit left and right. And he doesn't even, he's aware of it and he knows it. And he keeps saying it, you know, your bullets do nothing. Your bullets do nothing. And until that final shot that really brings him down, he has like a moment of, uh, I, I, I thought the moment was very similar to the moment of him bringing the other gentleman out in the street and, uh, and, and, and killing him in front of everyone. It, was not, it wasn't about who was around or where he was or anything. It was about the reaction to what, to what these people had caused him in terms of loss and grief. But if anybody read it a different way, I'd love to hear it because it is a very interesting scene that I think could probably be read a lot of ways. And I might have just been reading it on a two-surface level, you know. No, I think that's an interesting point. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess that now that you phrase it like that, I, I guess it all to me feels like it's it's just tying back into that feeling of agency, even to an almost comical degree when he's being shot at. And it's like, okay, this is definitely the movie taking liberties for the sake of a dramatic effect. But uh, yeah, it was definitely interesting of his like, refusing to be affected by bullets even it's like his will is so strong it's like you know your bullets don't affect me or like whatever you're saying Um, (laughs) i loved it (laughs) yeah honestly it's it's one of those things where like it's cheesy but like the movie owns it so it's not like oh i'm cringing it's like you know what fuck yeah yeah he's he's impervious because that's how strong his will is it's cheesy in a powerful way exactly yeah yeah I'm sorry, Blake, what were you going to say? I caught some of the same themes between the two scenes, but I just never connected them. But I think you're absolutely right, Brett. I, you know, it's just, it's one way that I saw it. Uh, Figs, you got any uh, input on that? I mean, uh, I didn't really necessarily read it the same way as you. I thought it was just kind of everything coming down around him. And that was just one more thing. Mm. Um, I think if anything, I would have kind of likened it to when he finds out about man and Gina before he shoots him he has kind of the same look on his face like he does what the fuck is going on mm-hmm. and and then he makes that move and then i think it kind of goes back to i think i believe it was right before gina comes in the room when he's like kind of apologizing to manny um he kind of has that same kind of defeated attitude about him and i thought that was kind of interesting where it was maybe one of the three points in that movie he was defeated is when his thinks he has emotional connections with die, you know, the whole time that he's getting shot and he's taking bullets, you know, he's this for lack of a better example, a WWE star standing on the ropes. Right. But he never seems, he never seems defeated when he's being defeated. But when the people around him are dying and getting hurt, that's when he's defeated. Yeah, I I do think that that's a really good, that's a good point. Uh, uh, th- the movie shows you him broken, like you said, more often when the mm. people around him are, are are dying. And the thing I like, like even going back to the first chainsaw killing, like we mentioned, he every death that he every death that he faces within the film whether he wanted it to happen or not is all a result of him. He's the one who right. chooses to kill Frank. He's the one who puts his sister in the situation where she 
would end up being it's all it's everything it's his lifestyle led her he killed her uh, husband killed manny you know uh, he has to bring her to his house to try and console her which puts her in harm's way of the people who are out to get him mm-hmm. everything falls back to one decision he made and that was a decision to chase this lifestyle because of what power and agency he thought it would bring to his life but he slowly sees it all just kind of fall apart and as each thing happens like yeah i, I love the way you worded that yeah it's like He's more impervious when he's the one directly being defeated, but he's more emotionally broken when it's the people around him who are being defeated, whether it was from his own hands or from his actions. Yeah. Uh, so while we're on the, the last line, uh, or the, the, the last ending part of the movie, uh, something I kind of put down here, and we've, I think we've brushed on some of it, uh, but and we definitely brushed on it at the beginning, uh, but I do kind of want to bring that discussion back around to some extent is going back to the iconic line of say hello to my little friend specifically in the context of what it was. And it's interesting because like we mentioned that that's a really quotable, obviously it's a cool moment in terms of if you see it without the context, it's like, man, that's kind of badass. Mm-hmm. But when you see it in context, I actually thought it was even better than it had always been presented to me when I was unaware of what the framing around that moment was. Here's a man who has built towards getting everything that he thought he had, but now he's lost everything, but his ego just refuses to quit. It's almost like his coping mechanism is just to let it all go and then just be the the badass. I'm Tony Montana. You can't mess with me. Like Josh said, um, his his willpower is so strong in that moment because of him his ego that it's like he he refuses to let the bullets be the downfall of him until he just cannot physically do it any longer uh and and you know it's it's almost like the way I word it on here is it's like all this happened after his drunk moment of clarity and realizing that everything he'd worked for is essentially pointless. So, you know, prior to the end of the movie, uh, a little bit, or it's probably in the latter, uh, the latter quarter, uh, there's a scene where he starts to see everything already falling apart. He sees Manny kind of distancing himself from him. He sees his wife distancing himself from him and not loving him, despite the fact that he'd went through and done all this stuff and, and killed for her, literally. It's like he goes through all this, and in that moment, the thing he's like you know is this what i'm is this what i do everything for so that we can eat fancy food at a restaurant another time it's almost like he's painfully aware in that drunken moment that he has become uh the the fat gentleman you know the the portly gentleman that uh oh yeah warned him of uh and i thought it was really interesting to see him have a while drunk he's having a moment of sober realistic uh, realism of what his life has become and it's almost like it took him being inebriated and in a state of non self control that he could actually have that moment of clarity because otherwise, you know, who is he? It's like it, it's, it goes back to that idea of agency and building who he is and him controlling who he is by his actions, his word, and the way he chooses to view himself in any given moment. But eventually he has to, and when he's drunk and not completely in his own mind, he has a moment that contradicts that. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I actually wrote down the dinner scene because I think, you know, I think that was when, like you said, he noticed that his, like I put Tony's spiral downward because I think that, you know, that's when he noticed that his life was, you know, kind of out of his control in a lot of aspects that he thought he was in control of. Like you said with his wife that I also wrote down here a little bit above that because even before that scene, I started to think like, did Elvira ever want to be with Tony? 
Like, even whenever she or he killed Frank and went to go get her out of bed, like, she didn't seem, like, excited or happy. I know she was asleep, so, like, maybe that yeah. was part yeah. of it. But, like, was she just going with him because, like, what other choice did she have, I guess? Was she scared of him or... See, I, I don't necessarily think she was scared of him at all, and I could be misremembering, but I'm pretty sure I wrote it down properly. The scene after you see Tony take her away, she's doing cocaine. I'm pretty sure. Immediately, yes. She, immediately I think, after. I do think I think you're right. Which is what I think the only reason she went with Tony is because that's how she was going to get drugs. Right. It was a means to an end. And, and sure. actually, only reason. I do agree with that because, you know, at the dinner scene when all this is going on, she actually brings that up. You know, she's she, yeah. she talks about, like, you know, I don't love you. You're an asshole. You'd be a nicer person if you would stop and think about other people. It's almost like she's having, uh, again, in, in the moment where she's doing all this stuff, she's having a sobering moment as well, which I thought was just a weird dichotomy that in the scene where everybody's probably the most messed up, everybody's viewing themselves the most clearly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know. I think that's an interesting thing because uh, to an extent, life can be like that. You know, you, you kind of get caught up in whatever the thing is you're doing and you're focused on the goal. And it's sometimes hard to kind of self-evaluate in the process of that. So it was really interesting to see that sort of like, okay, cool. Like we've achieved everything. Like, is this it? This kind of sucks. Um, I, I guess my brief thoughts on uh, uh, Elvira's thing is like, yeah, a mix of serving her self-interest as far as going along with it, but also, uh, and I, I don't mean this as like a put down. I just mean this as like, this is my like viewing of it. It just, she's kind of a typical 80s two-dimensional woman character who just hasn't really been written all that well um like there's a little bit of you know i I don't know how to phrase it like sure there's a little bit of you know she has some agency but i feel like there's still a lot of like i I feel like we get glimpses of a character but then she mostly just kind of does what the movie needs her to so i in my personal take, and I'm not saying this has to detract from anyone else's viewing of it. I just found like, okay, cool. I don't have to really get too hung up on her internal reasoning for a lot of this stuff. Cause I don't know how hung up the movie is on her internal reasoning. It's, it's more about Tony and she's kind of, uh, regarded as an accessory to Tony in that way. I think. Yes. That's a really good way of putting it. And you're, and the thing is, is that the, you're, you're right. The movie gives her just enough depth to kind of put you in the, the, or to, at least for me, it wanted to put me in the position of trying to think about what her motivations would be. But I do think you're right. For the most part, the movie completely, it just goes around that and never really worries about what she is. She's a means to the story. And it doesn't take away from the performance. I actually think it was a pretty good performance. And I think that the, yeah. the way she was written is better than a lot of women in that time period were written, mm-hmm. but it still was less than it could have been. Now that said, I, I mean, I do think she has importance to everything in the long run, yes. but I don't think it's, she's anywhere near as important as you think. And I think it is easy from some of the more modern movies that have actually tried to take a, a love interest who's, uh, who's, different like that and give them more depth and more reasoning behind the story and make you want to chase their motivations in a much more deep way than that movie chose to do it. It did make me want to do it, but it made you do it in a way where it, it felt like even though it, it kind of tickled you to be like, Hey, you know what, what would her motivation be there? It seemed like the movie offered no scenes that would 100% concrete give you evidence as to what her motivations could have been. It's left to kind of just, it's vague enough. It's, it's enough there that you notice it. It's vague enough that you can kind of fill in the blank. Yeah. I think 
something that I'm thinking about now when you were kind of talking about her as an object. I kind of think ex- that's exactly what she was to him, was just an object. At least, I don't think the movie portrays her as an object. I think if you really like were to watch her scenes, she's actually like a broken and battered woman in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. I think... I think the thing with her is that I think she's really the first woman that Tony sees when he comes to America that he respects. I don't know if respect is the right word, actually, but he doesn't seem like an easy conquest, right? There's that whole scene, I think, before they meet where Manny and him are going out and Manny is doing the, the, the I'm going to eat your pussy thing with his tongue, you know what I'm talking about, to the random yeah. women. And I think it kind of goes to show that, like, the women in bikinis with their butts out and all this stuff in Miami, right, those were women that he didn't respect, necessarily. Mm -hmm. You know, those are women that look like easy conquest because they're wearing no clothes, almost... In a lot of ways, you could almost look at it as a critique on rape culture, right, where the classy woman is the woman that he wants to marry, but the, for lack of a better word, the whores on the street are the women that he just fucks, right? And I think that's kind of the way the movie portrays her, where he needs to have her because he respects her because she's not showing her butt on the street in Miami. And I think, maybe I'm looking at it weird, but I think that's kind of the way, in his mind, it worked, where it was another elevation, right? When he was working at the taco stand, he's fine with this stuff, but now he's Tony Montana, he needs the woman at the top. You know, it's... I agree with some of what you said, and I think mm-hmm. the rest of it, maybe we're just viewing it differently. Uh, one of the things you mentioned that I really, uh, to me, the, the movie actually does not give Tony any real interest in women until yeah. Elvira. But the interesting thing about viewing her as an object, I actually do think that that's the, the way the movie frames her throughout Tony's eyes, not necessarily for the viewer themselves, right. though you will inherently somehow see it through Tony because he's the primary viewpoint you're looking at everything through. Mm-hmm. Uh, but do you notice Tony falls in loves with her without ever speaking speaking to her ever actually even seeing her full anything i think that you're right in the sense of the other girls and the reason that tony had no interest in them is that they were an easy conquest and i think all she was to him was a beautiful woman who was a challenge Mm -hmm. and it only got uh that 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 pull only got exacerbated as he tried (laughs) to uh, overcome the challenge and he was just met with more challenge. It's almost like it made it more of a cat and mouse game for him. It was like, right. ah, yes, here is the girl that will be the one who lets me kind of be like, when I get her, I will have earned it. It is, you know, it's it's another thing that I will have earned in my in my conquest. And again, it goes back to agency too. Once he decides that she's the challenge and he gets her, he becomes the person who's in control of her mm-hmm. and he keeps himself in control of her. Uh, uh, Josh, I think I heard you spoken, uh, speaking. I just wanted to give you a chance to uh, kind of intercept and see what you have to say about that. Uh, appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I'm more or less agreeing with your take on that. Uh, I, I think it all, whether it's her, whether it's uh, Tony's sister, whether it's Tony's mom even, I think his version of respecting people is still ultimately always dwarfed by his self-interest and i I think that's perpetually demonstrated you know where it's like you know it's never really what his wife wants it's how can she go along with what he wants and you know it's it's not like he like uh 
or, or you know, here's a an example of uh, it's maybe a mix of because it's certainly portrayed negatively, but I also wonder how differently it was received in '83 when the movie came out versus how it would be received today when, uh, you know, when he's being incredibly controlling of his sister and you know she's dancing with that man at the club and he like uh, chases them into the bathroom and like throws uh throws him off of her and it you know ends up like you know hitting her and then like you know going off and like just yelling at a bunch of people and it's like you know in i think that's the thing that may have been given a little bit more of a pass at the time whereas like now like that'd be like okay cool we're filing charges not just like all right we're gonna have a ride home and it's all gonna be cool afterward um yeah yeah, I do agree with that scene being odd. Uh, going back and try and viewing that from today's standpoint, it's like you understood uh, contextually why it was treated the way it was, mm-hmm. but you almost I it did make me curious of what the audience who were watching the movie at the time period of release thought of it. Mm-hmm. You know, was it was it considered a more acceptable moment? Whereas to me, it was this further. It, it it was further credence to the fact that Tony could be a monster when yeah. not checked and he was seldom kept in check because he had no reason to be and it was in direct contrast to his aspirations um right uh one thing that i don't think anybody's mentioned but um it's definitely something you see throughout the movie a lot uh there's it's really it's two things actually that i noticed uh in in relation to tony as the movie progresses uh so one of those things is that as the movie progressed and you see him get more and more um it's like almost with every success he has i'm trying to think of the way his his demeanor and his posture change in a way Hmm. Uh, i noticed that throughout the movie and this could just be a weird thing but i i I really hope it's purposeful it seemed like throughout the movie as he continued to strive for more and more and get more and more his posture would sink as the movie kept going and it seemed Mm. like it was a slow whittling down process to where when you're first seeing him and he's sitting on frank's couch he's upright i mean no he's not completely upright but i mean you know he's definitely more of like oh here i am in this moment i'm living i'm loving it and as you keep seeing the movie it's like that demeanor and that way he sits goes more and more to a slouch Mm. and uh head kind of hanging in a very different setup and you see that uh, at the dinner table when he's going through that moment you see it when he gets into the room with all the people who are uh, um, asking him to go and put the hit out on the guy who's going to jeopardize their business you see him kind of sitting in a, a very almost like he's tired of it all in defeated way yeah. and you see him like putting his hand his head in his hands and these are this is body language you didn't see from him at the beginning of the movie when his drive was full and he had something to achieve but as he achieved more and more and what he had to achieve lessened it's almost like you saw his body language shift towards someone who was not quite as uh, reveling in it as they once were yeah uh, that was one thing and the other thing that i really feel like tied into something that i, I more than anything i just thought was interesting that they chose to do it and i really loved it was uh the ominous music that they would choose to play yes. in any moment where it was a scene that to me was meant to imply that Tony was cracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's uh, the moment when he looks at the guy getting of the sister. And now that I'm thinking about it this way, I actually didn't frame it this way originally. 
but it's almost like you hear that movie when you or you hear that music. Sorry, uh, in moments where Tony is is realizing that he doesn't have control over the situation, he sees his agency slipping. Yeah, uh, and what I thought was really tell what I, what I thought was really interesting and telling about the music is it's almost like it's. If you've never seen the movie, and you of course can tell that Tony can be a little bit of a, of a brash person, you might even say signs of a little bit of a monster. But the music that they choose to put there is uncomfortable. It builds a. It's almost like like what you saw out of horror movies in the time period, where it's meant to be long, drawn out, ominous sounds that build an uncomfortable tension over a longer period of time and letting things hold out. And it kind of lets the viewer in on the fact that Tony is a monster far before we actually see the worst parts of him. Uh, I, th- I thought that was interesting. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, the soundtrack was very purposefully used all throughout, and I think it was a. Uh, it, it's. It was almost John Carpenter esque, which is a almost an insult, exactly. I guess, because I mean, you know, this composer uh, Maroder is, you know, he's a he's a god in his own way. Um, yeah, but I, I think that there's something similar there where it, it's it sort of feels foundational to what we know today as synthwave, uh, and it's very cool yes, seeing yeah. some of the nighttime moments where it's like the sleek, it's like the peak of '80s consumerism. You know, it's nighttime in Miami, and it's like you're here to party and revel in excess. Uh, and hearing that become sort of demented as it is in those moments where, as you said, you know, we're sort of seeing from within, uh, Tony just kind of starting to lose it. Um, yeah, it it was a really, it was something I, I enjoyed a ton. I thought it was really effectively used throughout the movie. Yeah, what I what I kind of worded it as is it becomes you see this a lot in in, in plenty of movies that they use a, re, a recurring theme for a character and that theme or that motif comes back around in other things, um, but it's it's like it becomes Tony's theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. It's the one piece of music that every time you hear it, it's specifically in relation to Tony's feelings and reactions at that moment. And there's no other piece of mu- mm-hmm. music that comes up every single time in relation to one specific thing. I thought that was a really powerful use of it. And I'm glad you said John Carpenter, because the thing is, is that the way that they use it makes me think of Carpenter's use of the horror sound. And, and it, the whole soundtrack does it to an extent. But mm-hmm. in particular, this moment sounds so much like Carpenter's work with like the Halloween theme and yeah. all these things. And it just, it, and it continues to get longer and longer in those moments of you hearing that music and seeing the, the disconnect in Tony over a time period. It's like it lengthens every time that you see it throughout the movie. It just stays longer and longer makes you more and more uncomfortable. <laughs> Which to, to wrap this bit of it up, I, I think makes the, uh, the section with Ernie being offered the job all the more comedic because the music is just really unsettling. And then it just stops and there's no music and it's just like hey you want a job <laughs> it's just like you know we're, yeah we're in murder yeah. mode and then it's like hey we're joking around so it's, and it, yeah and it goes to show you what the what the lack of a uh, of a soundtrack can actually suddenly do how quickly the tone can shift yeah uh in a, in a weird way it's almost like you're juxtaposing those two things against each other and you're using the soundtrack to act as the uh the arbitrator between those two styles uh, a very interesting uh thing yeah well, is there any other uh, is there any other immediate things that come to mind for anybody? So I've had one scene that I wanted to talk about. I know we have to wrap up for Blake, but I'll just go touch on it quickly. Uh, it was my favorite scene in the movie was when Tony first meets Sosa. I thought that scene was really good because that was the only scene, specifically knowing the ending of that movie, where I wasn't sure what the fuck was going to happen. Mm. You know when. 
you know, they send the other guy out. It was in my head. I knew that Tony wasn't going to die, but there was a part of me that's like, oh, he's just going to kill this cocky motherfucker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, okay. So you're meaning when Sosa comes back actually, cause he, you know, he meets Sosa at the very beginning right, of the film. Right. I'm sorry. When they meet in, um, Columbia, Columbia. Correct. Yes. Thank you. When they meet in Columbia. Gotcha. Yeah. I wrote down to the whole Columbia scene with the phone call. Like where they walk off and they like like you said, the camera goes back and forth between uh, Omar and uh, Tony, and they're arguing, and then the camera goes back to Sosa and I don't remember the other guy's name, but they're on the phone, or they're holding a phone, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I wrote down the phone, but uh, and they keep looking back at him, and like you said, if I hadn't seen it before, I'd be like, what the fuck right. is gonna happen? Like, what are they gonna do to these guys? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, I definitely thought the same way. You didn't know if Tony was going to be lumped in. Like you knew that something was going on, mm-hmm. but you're uncomfortable as you are trying to figure out who exactly it's going to affect. Right. So, so I guess the last thing I, I do want to ask: Did you guys think he was actually a cop? I don't know. No, but I yeah. did at the beginning. I, I had some weird moments of like, mm-hmm. uh, what's what's going on here? Um, but uh, interesting subplot, I should say. You know, yeah. to try and quickly throw in and and uh and, and use um and the you know the omar being an informant situation a, a lot of that was interesting and, and i mean it was used obviously for the story's purposes but it also it was almost like it was done in an effort to have the movie suddenly throw you a loop mm-hmm. i mean of course it was to the service of the plot mm-hmm. it helped tony get to a point where um is springboarded yeah. every decision he made to get to where he is at that final scene. Right. Mm-hmm. I just, I do think what's interesting is I'm, I believe again, I believe the next scene was Tony basically being told by that cop that you have to be a rat to be on top. And I think that was pretty interesting. Hmm. Uh, you know. I didn't catch that. It, it's not, not necessarily to the degree of like you're informing to the government, but when he's talking to the cop and he's basically aligned telling him what we need, He's like, you have to give us some guys on their way out. You have to, you have to rat on people so that we look good. And I thought yeah. that that was super interesting. I do remember seeing that. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, um, well, uh, there's a couple of things that uh, for me, if uh, actually before I do that, because this is going to be a little bit more on the wrap up side of, you know, we've been talking mainly thematic uh, standpoints and scenes that we liked, but mm-hmm. there was also a lot of just interesting things from the movies, uh, from the movie as someone who is watching it, you know. 40 something years out, you know, 40 years out, uh, almost, uh, that I caught, but is there any other like themes or final things that somebody wants to push before we kind of touch on just uh, little interesting tidbits throughout the movie that caught our eyes? I think from my standpoint, we've covered just about everything that I wanted to, or that I had planned on covering. So I'm good to continue if everyone else is. I think my one wrap up comment would just be, uh, I'm curious if there's any additional like metaphors or symbology in, uh, you know, cause it, we very often see, uh, <laughs> you know, characters likened to biblical characters or characters from classic tragedies. Uh, I, I'd be curious if there was any sort of intentional parallel between, uh, you know, between Tony and, you know, w- what any sort of those characters might go through. Um, but even if there isn't, uh, it's certainly well enough explained in its own world. I'm just, I'm always curious cause I feel like artists tend to want to, connect strings between their work and other things yeah you know that's that is interesting and and people feel different ways about this but clearly there's a lot of greek literature and and greek characters that are brought back around uh uh, to the idea and actually what i didn't realize um and let me double check and make sure i'm not crazy on this uh 
but Scarface was originally a 30s film. Okay. And then was remade. So, you know, a lot of what it was is, if nothing else, we already got to see the idea of the movie trying to take uh, a character that had already been established and modernize it and bring it into a different situation that was more culturally relevant to people there of course using it in a a moment of uh, political strife uh, bringing it through the eyes of a refugee coming in and trying to make a a, a living for himself and one of the things I didn't actually mention on here but it is a pretty quick thing uh, in in relation to that is I did think it was a very interesting commentary on the American dream and the American problem from the expecting of an immigrant and I use the word American problem specifically uh in the sense that the the american dream side of things uh is that you can come over here and anybody can be anything uh that's the way that people tend to view the american dream when they speak on it broadly uh but the movie is bringing that to you from a twisted perspective uh but it is a perspective that certain americans even people who are not immigrants have uh when they're people who were raised here and should know more than the what the american dream is versus people who are hearing about it uh handed down as this uh ever promising thing you know the americans who are here they view it uh, in the light of well we're here this is our birthright we have this uh, opportunity uh automatically other people are viewing it more as this thing to chase and go after and it's what drives them here yeah. but you know it's really interesting that if you there's a line in the movie where he talks about it it's essentially the american dream but it's like he's perverting the way it is so he say, he says money first then power then women uh, and when he's talking to manny and it's like him and manny talking about all that uh and and going back to that scene of them trying to pick up people you know he he says why are you even trying that you know don't bother he goes i i he says it's firsthand about america you know he says uh why are you what are you wasting your time doing that i told you the women here are not about that they want money you do the money first then you get the power then you get the women Uh, and i thought that was a real interesting take on what the american dream is from someone else coming in and viewing our country definitely in that time period Mm -hmm. uh, through their own lens are we going to mention the whole tongue scene (laughs) <laughs> we should. I, I mentioned I, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I about to say Figs mentioned it, but it's a it, it oh, is I a great him mentioning it somehow. It's a it's a really funny scene, and I actually think that the movie did a great job with uh, sprinkling comedy in where needed. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, the thing that really got me about that scene, and I don't want to go too far away from what Josh was talking about with parallels between characters, uh, but uh, the, the thing about that scene in particular is that uh, it's one of the earliest scenes that I think weirdly humanizes Tony Montoya. It's like you have yes. all these things going on and he's got brief moments of where you can see a normal, relatable person in him. Uh, and then there's times, and then there's that time right there where you're like, Oh, you know, to some extent he is just a normal, right. you know, he can be a normal human who's just having fun and poking fun with his friend. And it doesn't have to be 24 seven grinding to get myself to this top. He takes a moment to breathe and make that funny joke. And it obviously helps the movie from a pacing standpoint, have a little comedic break there um, mm-hmm. in between heavier scenes, but it's also serves to, I think build up Tony slightly differently in the eyes of the viewer. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, but going back to what I was talking about with uh, what, what Josh had mentioned in terms of parallels to characters, uh, while I did look and see, and I've never seen the 32 Scarface film, uh, I wondered the same thing going into it. You know, is this kind of like a modern <laughs> retelling of a like a Greek parable or older stories? Like, you know, we often see movies brought forward with a different name, but they are essentially the same stories that you've mm-hmm. seen from Shakespeare or even older into Greek periods where they're just modernizing it and putting it in a different way and they're drawing parallels to these people uh, on purpose and I, I don't know I, I was interested to see if there was if you if you peel Scarface and Tony Montoya and who they were making him if you peel all that back to just the primary thematics of, of who he is and what he was is there another uh, anal- analogous person to him that they pulled from and specifically tied to with him uh, in, in an attempt to use that as a foundation to retell and of course warp it to something that makes a little more sense in our modern time uh, I, that, I'm glad you said that Josh because I thought it at the beginning of the film and as I kept watching it and then it, it had left me I, I don't know why I didn't write that down but now I, I'm going to do a little bit of looking I'm, I'm actually curious to see if that was a conscious decision or if there's another character in, in, um, in older literature or older stories that somehow does link up to Tony and uh, the the overall themes of what they're doing with Tony. So, yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, I had like additional thoughts, but uh, I can save them honestly. They were more about like the small talk and humanizing stuff. But if we're well, no, uh, no, go ahead. For time. If you know, I mean, and Blake, you you could tell us: Are we crunched for time right now, or? Uh, I probably got about five or ten more minutes, honestly. So okay, well, let's see if we can go ahead and knock those out. Because uh, I, 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 while we're talking about humanizing uh, uh, Tony, I do think that that's kind of an important thing. You know, the movie we've talked about it showing him and portraying him as a monster a little bit, but we didn't. Uh, we, we did kind of. It's easy to gloss over the moments of the film that choose to uh, show him in a different light. Yeah, uh, my quick comment then is just I think for as very long as this movie is uh i think that's one of the things that it did really well with its runtime is us having those human moments in the beginning and especially between uh tony and manny i I felt like it was really it it almost felt like i wasn't watching a movie it just felt like i was watching two dudes just being weird on the beach like you know just like hanging out like kind of giving each other shit um yeah and especially when he's like you know hey kid watch this he's about to like get slapped by this woman or whatever um (laughs) It was really cool to see, you know, I think to a point you brought up earlier, a lot of times when we have a longer runtime, it's not necessarily for breathing room. It's for more, you know, end to end action and stuff. And that's not like a thing that's universally true or anything. But I think that's something this movie did really well is just having those like conversations where it's like, okay, I I almost forget I'm watching a movie. I just feel like I'm watching like, you know, like some someone just set up a camera here in Miami in 83 and here's just two guys having an off color conversation. Um, yeah. but I think that definitely made the descent of, of Tony a lot more effective. Cause it's like, okay, here's like, you know, they're, they're fucking around on the beach and then here's seeing how dark it goes is like, I think it makes it more effective. Cause it's not just like mm-hmm. movie character. Of course, something's going to happen because it needs to, because it's a movie. It's like, wow. Okay. I'm watching a person have a real conversation here and now to see how far it's gone. Like, I think that really cemented it. Yeah, another moment of levity that I would like to just mention real quick because it's 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 directly in theme of that, and I notice that they do it more in the beginning of the movie and less in the end of the movie as they start to change. They want to make sure that you're not viewing Tony in too too positive of a light. Um, but early in the film, when he's going around and he goes to uh, he goes to pick up Elvira in the uh, the Cadillac or whatever it was with the crazy. Uh, uh, 
you know, seats and everything. And then they go and decide, he, he decides, I'm going to go out and, and mess with this car thing. It, it was such a really funny, great moment seeing him go around and get in the car and act a fool. And uh, exactly like you said, it looks like you're turning the camera on somebody who's just deciding to go around and have a fun, uh, fun time just living and experiencing life. And something that ultimately had no ties to the movie other than giving you that breathing room and giving you time with a character to just kind of help you like i said the the long runtime is in aid of the in, in aid of building the world and that's one of the things they do in building the world is making sure that each character does feel like uh for the most part uh, they feel like they have moments to where you see them in a different light uh and it kind of helps frame the movie but go ahead blake no i was just gonna make a joke uh about y'all saying that you know it's almost like they're just dropped off a camera and watching them or whatever and i kind of now want like a 2020 remake like found footage version of scarface (laughs) that'd be great that would be fantastic um okay well uh real quick if we have time blake you'll be the the arbiter of that how how long do you think we got yeah i got another five minutes or so what's up okay uh Last thing I kind of wanted to just uh, cover, and since I'm hosting this episode, so next episode, this can go any other crazy amount of ways. Uh, But the last thing I kind of wanted to mention was uh, interesting things that I just put down that uh, were very much of its time, uh, sometimes uh, in a way that comes off as endearing now, viewing it later, and other things that came off as kind of an odd choice, uh, an odd choice against what the rest of the movie did really well. Uh, Mm. So one of the the positive things is I just love that that movie uh, has its own little classic 80s montage moment where you have the music going uh, and and what I love more about it is that it probably wasn't cliche at the time uh, and this is another thing where I I think that I've seen things that I didn't realize were somewhat I mean of course you see things and go oh it's it's mocking the 80s montage as a whole but I didn't realize how much of that actually came from probably this one scene where you're seeing it and it's the, the now cliche, push it to the limit. That's the song they chose to put in this moment. Uh, and you know, you're just seeing him, you're seeing Tony's rise. And I love that. That's a, it's something that you don't see in movies as often, unless it's doing it for comedic purpose. That used to actually be a, a device that they would use to aid in speeding up the story and getting you to a point where you needed to understand that he had this rise, but you didn't need to see every single step of it. You know, you see that in the Rocky, movies as well you need to see him training to get to the point where he can beat apollo creed but we can't you know we don't want to spend you all the time because that's not the most important part uh i thought that was really funny Mm -hmm. i didn't else have any like like you said to kind of speed up the process this movie's already three hours long if they hadn't put that into a montage like oh my god Maybe like a miniseries or something. (laughs) But the the montage also did have its moments of understanding when to be funny. You know, when you see the banker sitting there and they're pulling up the truck and just pulling out bags and bags and bags of money and the banker's just (laughs) looking like, what the hell am I going to do with all this money? Yeah. Yeah. It it, it was a great moment. Did anybody else have any like uh, any scenes that were uh, or anything in particular, not necessarily a scene, but something about the movie that just seemed like it was of its time or about the way it was filmed that was kind of just interesting and funny and lending credit to uh, the, the way the movie was? in its time period my favorite thing was just no. seeing the classic cars uh yeah. new at the time uh y- you know just like pulling up in like a porsche or whatever it is and just like you know because it's i don't know that's the thing that i think is a big deal for me because like just our, our cars have such a specific aesthetic now and they did then too and it's just really cool seeing like every car is like that and it's just like all over the city and like you know pulling up and it's like it's pristine it's brand new it's not like a a replica but i don't know that's just like a little thing that i enjoy 
you know, there's a moment when he's in the uh, in the Porsche and he's uh, actually leaving the uh, the club, and uh, after after he gets shot, and uh, it's of course a, a scene that has so much more going on, uh, but it just struck me from a stylistic standpoint. It's funny. I don't know if it was intended for stylistic back then, but it comes off as uh, so directly put in like if you if you saw that stuff in a movie that was made today you'd be like man they really went out of the way to make sure they had a timepiece that felt accurate mm-hmm. uh, but the pop-up headlights i was just like man that's yes. just something that's so iconic from that time period uh yeah. I just, I, I, that stood out to me interesting I, I was like what a weird thing to just kind of stick with me but it did mm-hmm. blake did you have something you uh you were gonna say no not on this point um all the notes like kind of keep up with uh that that kind of thing from now on but i didn't really think about it from that aspect of like oh things that stuck yeah. out as that time period i guess yeah well it, it, and, and that's not something you have to do these are just things i happen to see and uh, you know at a, i was i was approaching the movie in a different way which i actually appreciated I, i've realized that one of the things i was hoping this podcast would allow me to do is uh have more respect for movies than I think I traditionally did and kind of mm-hmm. view the view films and movies in a, in a somewhat different light and be a little more open. Uh, and I think looking at them in this way where I don't, I'm not trying to think of anything. I literally just opened my Google drive and anything that hopped to mind that stood there for more than a second. I was like, you know, I'm gonna type it in. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put it on there. Um, and it was interesting how much differently I think I watched the movie than I would I would have if I just decided, hey, I'm going to sit down and watch this movie. I watched yeah. it with a different attentiveness and a different uh, – it, it surprised me. And then I think that's part of what led to me enjoying the movie so much. Um, but uh, on, the, on the side of something I thought was really odd, and I'll, I'll end it off on this if nobody else has anything uh, that they want to add into it. Uh, there was a scene in the movie that I thought was really weird to put in the movie because every other aspect of the movie was able to do this uh, larger than life story that also seems to be grounded and rooted in its style and its tone. But there's a scene um, where in trying to aid its larger than lifestyle and the, Hey, these, this is somebody with tons of money uh, and, and kind of seeing what the effect of that is uh, the, when he goes into the room and they're showing the news segment that sh- that shows the guy who's going around and talking about the drug run, uh, and it t- it really caught me off guard because of how bad it looked in comparison to the uh, the rest of the movie, which I think still holds up perfectly as a movie today. It's it's incredibly watchable. Uh, was the scene when they turn the TV on. And I don't even know if it's a TV or a projector or what, but it's mm. inside of the picture frame and the wall of, yeah. the, uh, of the house. It looked so bad it was uh it, it you could it was really poorly done it was moving and shaking like somebody had mm-hmm. gone in and, and cut this in in an effort to kind of be like you know how rich this guy is he's got a tv <laughs> that you didn't even know was a tv yeah. <laughs> and it, it just it, it it seemed so against the rest of the tone of the movie like if the whole movie had constantly been trying to do something like that to sell it i'd at least understand and give it a little bit of forgiveness but it, i almost wonder who was like no damn it we're going to make this painting a TV, and that is the end of this all. I, I wonder if that was a director or a, or an overambitious producer or, or or what. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, shit, I totally lost what I was going to say. But to your point about the projector, uh, I think it tied into something that I don't know how intentional it was. It certainly read to me in retrospect because it's a thing that really highlights this time period. But just the the excess of the eighties and uh, similar to. 
when Tony's in the tub watching the news and it's like that real estate guy just being like, you know, or it's like the banker guy or whatever it is. And he's being like, we're using your money to build the city of tomorrow. And it's like this whole thing of like, here's like your investments and all this stuff. And to me, it just reads as such a very eighties view of like corporate America is here for your interest where it's like today we have a very much more cynical version of that or a cynical view of that. But uh, it's interesting to see that sort of eighties, like, you know, the just that whole vibe of it and making that sort of corporate greed seem appealing and seem like it serves everybody. Whereas uh, we certainly don't view it that way today. I think mostly. Yeah. You know, if you see something like that today, it's, it's a, it's a comedy sketch, you know, it's something that's poking fun at the the fact that that was at one point in time seen as a, uh, a reasonable thing to put up on TV. If someone did that now, you're right. uh, They'd be eaten alive if they tried to approach it from that (laughs) side. Uh, uh, But yeah, it was really interesting. And I love that they showed that after the scene of the banker coming to his house. Uh, yeah, I, I just I thought, that, and that was another funny scene. But uh, uh, okay, uh, this will be kind of yeah, closing Pelicans. remarks. If there's anything we didn't already touch on that you want to just throw in there real quick, uh, do so, and we'll kind of go from there. Fly, pelicans, fly. <laughs> <laughs> I have one thing I'm going to say, and I want to end my portion of speaking on this podcast with it. Joker and Scarface are the exact same movie. Okay, have okay, a good yeah. one. Nice to talk right, to you. Get out of here. Mm, the, why would you same. say something they're so controversial movie. yet so brave? I would be interested <laughs> to actually dig into why you think that, but we can do that uh, personal because uh, I know we're out of time. That would have actually been an interesting <laughs> angle to take this, but we right, do yeah. not have the time for that. Uh, okay, well, uh, I do everybody... have one question. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Real go ahead. quick. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and I think this is only a question that can be asked on the episodes of older films, maybe from like a decade or older. But if this came out today, would it be an A24 film? Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, <laughs> no, it would be a HBO Max TV show. Mm, you know? Point. That would actually be pretty accurate, I bet. I actually, yeah. I think I agree with that. I think that the, the thing about Scarface's long runtime that we talk about, you don't see it in movies as often anymore and definitely not for the same purpose. Like we talked about breathing room and a, and a slow build up towards a world. I think that people realize that the movie theater is as people's attention span has changed and what they want to see in their three hours at a movie theater is so much different than what they want to see within 10 hours at their home. I do think that that's probably the best way to describe it. Uh, and I think it would actually, if it were going to be remade, which I don't know that it should, uh, and I don't think it will because of how, how iconic it is, but if it's going to be remade, it needs to be remade as a long form television. Uh, mm-hmm. But if it was going to be a movie, I could see it being a 24 from the things I've seen from them so far, uh, just because it's obviously, if it if it well, released exactly as it did then, but today, I do think it'd be considered a very experimental movie uh, and a lot it, of different. It's very than artistic and like visually, yes. like stunning. It, you know what I mean? Yes, it definitely has a style about it. Uh, Josh, anything on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I, I think a lot of the same stylish stuff that stuck out to everybody stuck out to me. Uh, again, like when he's walking at night and it's just like rows of really cool parked cars and like it's it, it, it looked like a, you know, a GTA Vice City kind of thing where it's just like Tony's walking in the suit and you got neon lights on the outside of the building and you got like a synthy soundtrack playing and it was like, it, it was one of those things where some things that are of their time that are really unapologetically of their time don't age well. And this was one of those ones where I felt, uh, by and large, it, it aged supremely well yeah. as far as style goes. All right. Well, Blake, is that all you got? Yeah, I'm about to have to get out of here, y'all. 
Okay, let's wrap this thing up. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the first episode of Midweek Matinee. Of course, you'll have a, a, a different host uh, next week, but we'll determine that amongst ourselves before we go to record. But what we want to do is uh, kind of offer up the ability for you to watch along with the episode or with on the movie that we will be discussing next episode. And we have landed on uh, the, I'm not, I don't want to say controversial, but the somewhat uh, recent uh, blown up uh, movie as it would be called uh parasite uh is what we're going to be watching oh wait is that that's the name of the movie right yeah, yeah mm-hmm. parasite okay yeah i'm like we've been talking for so long my brain has somewhat lost itself um, <laughs> but yeah parasite is what we will be watching which uh just recently won some awards uh much to some people's chagrin and yes. other people's uh happiness winner of best foreign film <laughs> and best general film if i remember correctly so um mm-hmm. best overall film oh, so we will have some insight on that next week is going to be very interesting uh so uh we appreciate you we hope you guys enjoyed this first episode and uh if there's anything you like about what we're doing here be sure to let us know if you're listening on a, a podcast service like itunes uh please take the time out to give us a review uh, definitely in these early stages it's going to let us uh, help us shape the so show to something that uh, people really do enjoy uh, i know that i have enjoyed today uh, kind of getting to see mm-hmm. a lot of different opinions about this movie and i hope everyone else uh here today did as well so mm-hmm. hopefully you guys will join us next week uh whenever we are uh discussing parasite and uh hopefully you will see some of the same things that we see and also some of the things we don't and you will let us know by reaching out to us uh but we will uh, of course have all the pertinent information to that uh down in the description of the podcast uh so we appreciate you guys and we will see you next uh, week on midweek matinee thanks say goodbye to my little friend Ooh.